This is Erica in Edmonton. Shannon in Durham. And Chip in Durham. And you're listening to the Audio Guide to Babylon 5, Episode 47, A Day in the Strife. Descriptive title. So, last time, Chip, you were saying something about not remembering this episode, not remembering what was happening in it. So how long did it take you to to figure out what was going on in it? And was your memory lapse because you were just met about this episode? Or did it surprise you nicely? It surprised me nicely. Um, Hooray! <laughs> all I remembered about this was there was the episode in season one, By Any Means Necessary, when... Sinclair, when everything bad happens and Sinclair has to deal with the impending strike and everything else, and that opening scene with the uh, with the Transport Pilots Association or whatever it is, and I'm thinking, here we go again. Yep. Mm-hmm. yep. Um, but there's actually a fair bit of interesting stuff that happens. This is by no means my favorite episode, by no means. But um, it... It moves along some plots better than I thought, and it's, uh, you know, I, I, won't, I won't eject it. I won't space it. <laughs> Fair enough. Shannon, are you feeling like you want to space it, or? No, um, I, I didn't remember anything positive or negative, really. Um, so, you know, it took me a few minutes to play. So, oh, yeah, that's where this happens. Oh, yeah, that's where, that's where this happens. So there was some, some good stuff in here, and I'd forgotten that it was happening in this episode. Um, so it was a pleasant surprise to reconnect and watch this particular episode again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I actually did have a little bit of a an inkling last time just hearing the name A Day in the Strife. I was like, is that the one where Captain Sheridan is arguing with all those people who are angry about the docking stuff? And sure enough, it was. Turns out that <laughs> wasn't very much of what the story was about. But that was True. the bit that I remembered. How odd. And, and um, how interesting that... As our resident names mean nothing to me co-host, <laughs> that the least descriptive name in all of freaking Babylon Five, and it twigged something for you, and it and it twigged and it twigged like the most minor part of this episode. So <laughs> yes, I am I am an enigma wrapped in a mystery or something. <laughs> oh boy! All right, well let's let's get down to business here. Let's let's talk about what you need to know going into this one, and it's really not a ton. Uh, Babylon Five is a space station in neutral territory in a universe that has become somewhat less than neutral. The Centauri have recently resubjugated the Narn, and tensions are high. Narn Ambassador Jakar has been granted sanctuary on Babylon Five, and the Centauri government wants to prosecute him for war crimes. Centauri Ambassador Londo Molari was in many ways the architect of Narn's downfall and wants nothing more than to see his people take their place at the top of the interstellar heap once again. That's pretty much all you need to know going into A Day in the Strife, in which the political unrest in the galaxy means tighter security at B5, which means slower docking time, which means unhappy cargo pilots. Sheridan and Ivanova must deal with that contentious situation. Meanwhile, a mysterious probe shows up promising intellectual riches if they can answer several hundred advanced science and math questions, but it's also threatening destruction if they can't answer. Canny Captain Sheridan realizes it's all a bluff and saves the station by simply not answering. Meanwhile, meanwhile, Jakar is pressured to return to Narn to avoid the harassment of the families of the Narns on Babylon 5. Those very Narns, however, urge Jakar to stay, and he agrees. 
Meanwhile, 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 Garibaldi thinks Dr. Franklin's use of stims may be getting out of control. Stephen denies this, but he's less than honest with Garibaldi and possibly himself. Meanwhile, 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 <laughs> Londo decides to send Veer away to Minbar to reopen the closed Centauri diplomatic mission there. Phew, I have just said meanwhile so many times it has lost all meaning. Is this <laughs> is this the most serialized feeling episode we've had yet? Like the, the most soapy? We have five plots going on here. And the only one that, that feels really contained to this episode is sort of the, the A plot with the probe. What do you guys think? Uh, I think you're exactly right. This, this is an episode, you know, I'm going to assume since JMS was writing the entire season in one as one person in one shot that he's kind of planned for this. But to have an episode um, a, a little bit ways into se- series three that, you know, sort of touches on and catches up with a bunch of different situations that um, he's had cooking for a while. So, yeah, soap opera is is a perfect analogy for for this particular episode. Yes, it's got I suppose the the like you said the berserker probe to be something of a of an A plot for the story, but it doesn't really feel like it. It just feels like one of several things that are happening all at the same time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and the berserker plot is pretty darn thin. I don't it's my least favorite part of the episode because it comes out of nowhere just like the probe itself <laughs> and it's sort of resolved arbitrarily it's just this you know it's just this thing that happens that is on the face of it absolutely not co- connected to anything else in the Babylon 5 universe everything that's happening around it is kind of neat actually and advances our understanding of the characters very well. So I'm, I'm really glad that you described it as soap opera. That's exactly what this feels like to me. But uh, but in a good way. In a good way. I'm not an aficionado of soap operas, but I do like checking in with all of our characters and and advancing them a little bit. And, and this, this episode does an awful lot of that in a whole lot of different directions. It does. So, Chip, would you say the uh, the Berserker plot is just, you know, something, simply something that, in, uh, that illustrates that this is just a, a day in the strife, perhaps? <sighs> <laughs> yeah. and no, you know, this, and this episode is, like, completely designed to be a day in the life episode. This is Data's mm-hmm. day. This is, you know, <laughs> it's, that's all it is. So, I, I am a little annoyed with JMS for for creating a slice of life episode and apparently having a bit of either a failure of imagination or just lampshading. All right, damn it. This is a day in the life episode. This is what I'm going to title it. Yeah. It annoyed me too. A couple of times I kept thinking that this berserker bit is even with the supposed twist that, you know, Sheridan realizes that it's a bluff, that it's designed to take out more intelligent species and whatever you know, even with that, it still feels very Star Trekish. It, it feels like the, the kind of thing that a Star Trek plot might have in it. Um, and, you know, other than, you know, a little bit here and a little bit there uh, with this affecting the transport workers not being able to do anything while this thing's circling the station, um, with the pressure to get Dr. Franklin to come up with the medical biology side questions to add to hit the pressures already on him. You know, it's like you said, it's just kind of there, sort of, you know, sticking out in the middle, kind of out of place 
um, with everything else going around it. The the good thing, and there is a good thing to this subplot. Um, There's good is, in this subplot. I can there, feel it. There is a little good in this subplot in the fact that this gives the chance uh, Sheridan and Ivanova and Corwin to, to, get, to have the mm-hmm. central command folks. There's a chance for Sheridan and Ivana to, Ivanova to banter to one another. We get some personality out of Corwin that we haven't seen in a while. Um, so there's some there good reasons for There goes my faith in the this. Almighty. <laughs> yes. <laughs> So there were a few good bits to it, but the concept, the whole concept of it felt kind of hokey to me. Yeah, I think Stephen may be because, well, I don't know if I want to call him a, a Corwin fan, but he did remark to me while we were watching. He was like, you know, he should have his name in the opening credits, <laughs> considering how, how little apparently you have to do in order to get in the opening credits on Babylon 5. He felt like Corwin deserved to be there. You know, he's kind of not wrong. <laughs> Corwin versus Mary Kay Adams. Mm-hmm. I know who I would take in that matchup. Yeah. Yep. Um, I also like, well, I, I like, I remembered liking Sheridan in this, you know, being being savvy enough to to figure it out. But watching it again, I actually realized, so at the end, he says, wait a minute, we've been looking at this as if it's the alien, blah, blah, blah. He says we, but it was actually him who, who yes. came up with this whole way of looking at it in the first place. Ivanova says, why would they do this? And, and Sheridan says, oh, they must be looking for other, you know, other species who are <laughs> smart enough to, to communicate with them, which really on the surface is kind of a ridiculous thing in the first place. So, I mean, he... I don't like the way he says we later on when it was just him the mm-hmm. whole time. Sheridan's rule 49, only take credit for the accurate insights. <laughs> I guess so. But I did I did like that he, he figured it out. And I also liked that he waited until the probe got far enough away from the station that they could transmit the uh, the answers and then see if it blows up and, and then it blew up. So it's was, a good it was a nice button at the end. Yeah, it's a good performance for Box Leitner, mm-hmm. um, and he's got some really good lines. This is a well-dialogued uh, script for the most part. Um, I like the casual bit where he points out to Ivanova that he palmed the energy cap on his uh, on the PPG. <laughs> As he's playing, while she continues to rant, and he's just playing with it in his hand. Yeah, <laughs> yes. yeah, that's that's well waiting for her to notice. Yeah, that's well done, and the the the, the back and forth on the station um, where. Where he tweaks Ivanova and she's like, did you hear that? And Corwin's like, nope, nope, didn't hear a thing. He, he knows better. <laughs> it's, it's, it, it is fun. It is fun. It is slight. It is annoying because it is so slight. It just doesn't feel relevant. Mm-hmm. All of that aside, you know, it's fortunately, it is, it is just the spine of the episode, but it is not. It's the, it's the, it's the tree branch on which everything else hangs. Mm-hmm. It's not it's not meant to be the tree, thankfully. True. Well, speaking of other things that are sort of hanging on this this branch, uh, you know, if, if that's sort of the A plot, uh, I, I did sort of letter them all a little bit according to how much space they sort of took up in my brain after watching it. So I'm going to jump to uh, what I considered the E plot, and that was the disgruntled cargo pilot, simply because, you know, we're talking about Sheridan and Ivanova, and that's the, that's the other thing that mm-hmm. they did. In this story, at the beginning and at the end. Uh huh. Yeah, that was the, I, it's that not was even the bookend. 
it's not even almost enough to call it a plot. It's just a thing that's happening. But mm-hmm. I did, like you said, Chip, I did like him playing with the uh, with the cartridge and, and having taken that out and facing down the rabble rouser at the beginning there. Mm-hmm. Any other any other any other things you guys noticed about that that would make it mean more to me, or is it just is that all it is? Well, I liked the fact that it you know. Once again, something that JMS tends to do that a lot of science fiction shows don't do. He tries to show the practical ramifications of things. And we see at least briefly the fact that Sheridan has apparently or the command staff have decided that, you know, given everything that's going on around them, that the shadow war is beginning um, and that the Centauri are still apparently like, you know, threatening other little worlds around their borders, that they need to be more careful about what goes through and on the station. So they are searching uh, transports for weapons and other devices. They are checking to make sure to keep the station safe. That makes sense. That is something that would need to be done. But you know what? It slows things down. So they've got this population that's affected angry at them. It keeps us in that little toe of reality that makes, for me, makes B5 stand out um, as a science fiction show because it does bring in those practical bits. I agree. I don't think that this is a very realistic meeting scene. I mean, I can't imagine, I can't imagine even something as simple as, you know, a gavel. Uh, when you've got a transport association kind of thing going on here, uh, that, uh, and and mm-hmm. and sort of the everybody's standing, you know, there are no chairs. Everybody's standing, and there's there, there, there's just sort of this mob shouting thing going on. Mm-hmm. It felt to me like uh, a quick cheap scene dressing. Quick cheap scene dressing. It was. I thought this was a pretty competently uh, directed episode overall. I really love the handheld camera work uh, that happens on the uh in the station command center but these scenes just felt like uh david eagles didn't didn't really care much about what he was doing he was just uh, sort of getting the job done mm-hmm. well turning to what i sort of saw is either the b plot or the other a plot uh the other <laughs> kind of important thing going on and that's the whole story with with jakar being pressured to leave mm-hmm. to save the families of his fellow narns on the station and the fact that he agrees to go is something that surprised me just a little bit uh and then and then the fact that the other narns tried to convince him to stay also surprised me a little bit which i think is a good thing in a plot when you're we're talking about characters that i feel like we know well um mm-hmm. doing things that are are surprising is that's that's a nice thing to to see as a viewer how did you guys feel about that i wasn't at all surprised that jakar agreed to go as long as it was just him and the people on the station trying to help them keep them safe and get supplies and support to the home world you know, that he was fine to stay. But being told that the families of those people that, you know, he was able to, you know, call in a favor and get word from those families in order to secure his leadership way back when, I could see him, you know, deciding that these people do not deserve to be harassed because of me. I'm not that important. I I can see that coming from Jakar. I, I love this part, and this is this is the part that I had forgotten about, and this plot line makes the episode for me, uh, for mainly because of the character interactions. Uh, Stephen Macht, I believe, is his name, playing yes. the uh, um, Narn emissary. Nafar, yes. Nafar, mm-hmm. thank you. You're welcome. Um, he's an interesting character because. In the single most uncomfortable scene that I, in Babylon Five to this point, when 
Londo humiliates him. His mm-hmm. he could have been just a he could have been just a you know, fifth column appeaser or whatever. Fifth column is not the right word, but you know what I mean. You know, he could have been played as a craven, uh, opportunistic uh, Centauri toady, which some of the other Narn uh, clearly accused him of being. But he hates the Centauri just as much. That bit when Londo asks about the streets and he... The concentration camps, the relocation camps, the the work camps. The surviving streets are quiet. You know, Mm -hmm. he hates them just as much as Jakar. He just feels like that we've got to do... This is what we've got to do to survive until we can... uh, Until we can take our planet back. Um, so I think I thought that that was really important. I thought that that made this uh, this storyline and the 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 back and forth between Jakar and Nafar in in Jakar's quarters. Of course, you sympathize with Jakar, but it's mm-hmm. two different perspectives. It's these are two like intellectual equivalent. Um, mm-hmm. They have parody in the conversation. And it's I. Just- I I think it's glorious shades of gray, which yeah. is one of the things I love about Babylon 5. You don't have have it black and white. Each of these people really truly believes what they that the what they are doing is right for their people. They are both being selfless in a way and they just are coming at it from different points of view like you said. And I think that it's and 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 they're both of them play it so well. This is another case of getting a great actor to to be you know underneath all that narn makeup. And then on the other side you have Jakar just completely losing it when Nafar accuses him of, of causing damage and then you, mm-hmm. you also get Nafar backing down and saying you know that was that was a poor choice of words and and he's not saying that was a poor choice of words in a snide way he's he's actually admitting that that Jakar is, is right to to be slightly upset about that so they really it is a and meeting that, of the and minds. that mollifies Jakar a bit too mm-hmm. yep uh, yeah yeah, uh, I agree. That they did a good job getting uh, Stephen mocked, who's uh, yet another murder she wrote alum. Of course. Um, yeah, and still uh, doing a ton of. If if you go to IMDb, you will almost certainly recognize the character without the makeup. He's been in a ton of stuff. Um, but yeah, the the fact that they were able to take this character that could have very easily been, you know, as you said, just this buffoon for um, the the Centauri who has you know decided he's going to throw his lot in so he can survive, and that's not the case at all. He is. It's a very nuanced performance and a nuanced writing job even for this minor character it's wonderful yeah yeah have have either of you hated londo any more this season than in this episode never never <sighs> because londo there is there is contempt there is humiliation he alludes to veer that maybe that he doesn't necessarily feel all that contemptuous of the Narn, he probably does, but that it's just business. You know, the we've we we've got to keep the boot on on their necks to uh, keep them from ever rising to threatening our people again. And you you want to slap Londo for several reasons. You want to slap him because he's the aggressor, and now he's worried about them threatening his people again. Um, but there's not much shades of gray there mm-hmm. to the point that when he's having his uh, little casual conversation with Delin, 
it doesn't feel all that, you know, I, I, I don't want her to be, I don't want to, I don't want Delenn to be so nice to him. And in the end, she she's wasn't. not. No, she wasn't. <laughs> oh my God, no. She, she was cutting him into ribbons with her tongue. Mm-hmm. Well, before we get too far down along talking about Londo, because I want to get back to that, I just want to point one more thing out about the uh, the Narn subplot. And that is, I thought it was very interesting that it was Garibaldi who came to Jakar and urged him not to leave the station because he was going to get killed. Uh, you know, we always we always kind of knew that Jakar or excuse me, that Garibaldi and Londo had this this connection mm-hmm. uh, and friendship. And that is is clearly gone after the last time we saw the two of them interact. Uh, but we never really saw Garibaldi and Jakar interacting all that much. Uh, so I just thought it was neat. I mean, it makes sense because Garibaldi is the guy who knows what's going on on the station and he has access to all of the ambassadors. Mm-hmm. Um, but I thought that was that was kind of a nice character moment for, for Garibaldi that he cares enough to not want to see somebody else in his life die. Yeah, there's a little bit of the the security guard too. That you know, as as Sheridan said, as as we've said an episode or two ago, uh, the command staff. You know, Jakar is Arnarn. You know, we we like we want to keep him because we know him and he knows us. So I'm sure there's a little of that driving Garibaldi. But the mm-hmm. fact that he's you know tells us he's he's come to view Jakar as you know somebody who matters to him. That was a very cool little scene. And that is the second uh, moment. Uh, there was the uh, moment. Uh, late in last season when he had words with Jakar about weapons transfers uh, for the resistance Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. and then said, but here's how you can get around that. Yeah, that's right. I'd forgotten that. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. It's interesting to see that Jakar has really sort of, I mean, he's been the ambassador for his people all along, but you know, we not too long ago saw him having to fight to, to, to remain the leader mm-hmm. of his people on the station. And it looks like his victory in that episode was was so strong that not only did he get to stay the leader, but he is such a sort of, I don't know, beloved is not probably quite the, the right word, but he's respected. A, a respected, yes, a respected enough leader that his people will will actually, you know, beg him to stay, uh, that they recognize what it is that he sort of means to their people as a symbol of freedom. So that, that's kind of neat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One little practical bit I liked is that um, in uh, the crowd scene towards the end when they talked Jakar into staying, um, there were a couple of folks that we've seen before under Narn makeup. They're like reusing some of the same actors for continuity purposes, um, which uh, which was something I appreciated. And yeah. speaking of uh, reusing Narn actors, we get the return of Marshall Teague in this episode. Ikara! <laughs> Hush, that's in his past. <laughs> yes. yes. But yay. Yes, very, very, very yay to have Talon back. Mm-hmm. Well, he's got a name now. He didn't have one um, in the previous episode that he appeared in. Um, and yeah, he's great. I love the bar scene with him and Sheridan. I mm-hmm. did too. That the, the chemistry between the the actors just so worked so well. Yep. Even Stephen, actually, my, my Stephen, not Doctor Franklin, right. uh, remembered remembered him. He's like, "Oh, is that the is that the Narn that he saved from the uh, abduction ship?" And I was like, "Yep, that's the one. He is back." Um, mm-hmm. So I just I thought that was kind of neat um, that he has this connection already with 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 the captain. So it's it's nice to see mm-hmm. a. A side character come back and and exist again. That's kind of a cool mm-hmm. thing, and exist pretty darn well. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, not just uh, Marshall Teague's performance, but even in some of the directing and some of the choices made. Um, when Nafar first reports to Sheridan, 
and Sheridan stands up and starts talking to him, Talon moves to Sheridan's side in mm. the camera view. So he yep. is, un, you know, physically, but not saying anything, but he is essentially supporting Sheridan's side in this, even though he's supposed to be the bodyguard for Nafar, which I thought was kind of cool. Yeah, this was, yeah, I think both of you guys are right. There's a lot of good directorial touches in this, but nothing, nothing quite so, so in your face as we get in some of the other episodes, but, mm-hmm. uh, but it was very solid, very mm-hmm. solid. Well, let's, let's turn back to, to Londo at this point and, and talk about that, which I, I think I called it the D plot, which was uh, Londo sending Veer away to Mimbar, which I think fits hand in hand with Chip's description of Londo being just <laughs> downright awful in this episode. I think he's having trouble being so downright awful in front of Veer. And just Veer keeps to, calling him on Yep. Yep. Just, let's just get rid of him. him. Yep. <laughs> and he says that he's doing it for Veer. Mm-hmm. He's not. He's doing it for his own comfort. I mean, there may be a little bit of wanting to get Veer out of the line of fire if he, you know, has an inkling of just how bad these shadows currently are or may get. But still, the I think the, the major motivation is to get rid of his Jiminy Cricket. Yeah. And also, I mean, it, there might be a little bit of that goodness, too, that if Veer speaks up too much or speaks up to the wrong person, that could get Veer in trouble and getting him out of the way will we'll keep that from happening. But I do agree with both of you that the main reason for it is that he doesn't <laughs> he doesn't want to have his conscience staring him in the face every day. So Veer needs to go someplace else. And and, you know, at least he sends him someplace that he feels Veer is going to be safe. Minbar is probably a pretty safe yeah. place. I mean, oh, I think yeah. he, he, he believes it enough that, you know, when he tells Delenn, when she asks him for, OK, now how about the truth? You know, that that he says, you know, he, he really wants to get Veer somewhere, um, somewhere safer, that um, there's a ring of truth to that, that, you know, Delenn understands. Yeah, but much easier to get rid of the person who is reminding you of your conscience than, you know, changing your behavior, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, absolutely. There's well, no questioning that. Alondo has always been kind of the easy way out sort of guy. So this is <laughs> this is totally fitting and in character. And uh, at the end of the episode, uh, as Veer is, is walking away from Londo, like it's just watching him leave is like watching a puppy, a sad puppy, walk away from well, its Let's master. not talk about like, sad puppies, please. <laughs> <laughs> Slip of the tongue. My apologies. Uh, but it, it was just, it, it got you in the heart. Um, in the, in that same way, at least it did for me. And then Stephen turned to me and he's like, "He's really leaving." Stephen was shocked to see that they were actually sending Veer away, and I was like, "Yep." <laughs> you know, at the time it fit in with um, Stephen first had landed a role um, of some sort, and uh, Babylon Five was working with him so that he could do that. So, ah, gotcha. I, yeah, I don't well, remember. Good for what him. Sh- it was some sitcom. Was. Yeah, I, I honestly don't remember what it was. I'm sure if someone tells me, I'm gonna you know facepalm, but. Meh. I feel like I would remember a sitcom with him in it, so I'm guessing it didn't do all that well. Sorry, Stephen First. <laughs> all right. Well, anything else about uh, about Londo and Veer before we go to the the last plot, the, the C plot, as I as I labeled it? If, if I not, think more about Londo, I'm going to get sick to my stomach. Okay, so let's not do that. Let's move on to <laughs> Stephen and the Stims, which sounds like a '50s doo-wop group. That sounds oh. like a Elton John song, <laughs> or that. Yes. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so we've seen a, a couple of times here and there uh, Dr. Franklin using stims to, to keep himself going. And, and we know that they can be dangerous because uh, 
was it June Lockhart who mm-hmm. yep. told us that way back when in, in season Quality one. of Mercy. Yep. Yes, who had been disbarred for, for overusing them. And uh, we know that Garibaldi has a, an addictions background and can kind of recognize these signs and has that sort of awkward scene. And I don't mean awkward from a directorial standpoint. I just mean, you know, if you were in that character. scene. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Character-wise, very awkward. Um, trying not to be accusatory, but basically accusing him. And mm-hmm. and you get, of course, the, the classic defensive scene. Did you guys feel like that was that that scene was a little bit pedestrian in the way that it was what you expect from those types of things or did you feel like it fit (sighs) at the time i felt like it fit but now the way you say that now i'm second guessing myself um (laughs) i mean you know it certainly rang true as far as you know anybody who's you know, dealt with a friend or a loved one and their addictions and, and the first protests of I'm either first protests, I'm, I don't have a problem. Second one, I got it under control. Mm-hmm. You know, those felt very, very true. You know, but yeah, now that you, I mean, I don't know that I, I don't know that. And then maybe y'all have had different experiences, but I don't know that I don't know that real life interventions are ever any less awkward or less <laughs> forced. I'm not sure. Yeah, actually, I was I was really only phrasing the question that way just to just to just to get at what you guys think. Honestly, I liked that scene. I felt like mm-hmm. it was true to to the experiences that I've had, and and yeah, I mean, I, I think the reason that those types of reactions are sort of cliche is because those are the reactions that real people have. So you know, cliches become cliches for a reason, and mm-hmm. sometimes there's not a good reason to throw over those cliches just for dramatic purposes. So I am I am totally on board with that scene and 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 Stephen's behavior all the way through this. I thought. It was mm-hmm. interesting that at the end he actually lies to Garibaldi about about having not touched the stims, even though he he did. He looked oh, pretty uncomfortable liked, with that lie. And I also like that they sort of gave it a couple of steps because you know, like the first time he pulls open the door and he thinks about it and he remembers what he said to Garibaldi and he puts it back. But then the second time, you know, when the stress is even worse, even more powerful. Um, and he's like screaming at some um, Earth official over the um, berserker questions and the microbiology, where it's, you know, the entire station's at risk and not just the people in his med lab. You know, that's when he, you know, gives in and goes for it again. So I kind of liked, you know, JMS, when he has the time, will put in those steps towards whatever he may be building. Yeah. Yep. And, you know, I do have to say that I, I actually... It was it, it fit in well for to have Steven sort of, you know, go off on that woman and, and scream and yell at her because that's not exactly in his character. But I felt like it was completely warranted. Sorry, oh, yeah. the doctor is on vacation. Oh, yeah. What? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Are you not aware that we're all going to die in four hours unless you get off your butt? Yeah. Full marks to Richard Biggs for uh, we've been talking about wide eyed acting. This was tired eyed acting. And he did a great <laughs> job of that. Yeah, uh, as and um, I, I also like the way that, you know, they, they filmed this stuff all at the same time. So, you know, the um, the scene at Earhart's where at the beginning of the episode where he is exhausted and then he steps out and he, he uses takes, the little officer's room. <laughs> he loses, uses the little officer's room, comes back having used a stem. Um, the energy levels are just spot on. He is exhausted. He looks miserable. And then he comes back and um, and Richard Biggs just turned on a dime really well to get that energy, the energy levels in both parts of that scene correct. So props to him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Very much yep. agreed. 
Yeah, um, so. and, uh, and again, speaking of continuity, we have the same actress uh, playing one of the doctors that was in the last episode. So that was a nice touch. Oh, okay. I do like that. Um, I, I do think that uh, we are meant to pay attention to his use of stems because because of that lie at the end of the episode. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. That's, you know, that that's 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 not just lampshading. That is a floodlight. That's mm-hmm. a bat signal. Absolutely. Well, at this point, I will uh, I will let you in on the the Stephen check in for this episode, and he was not a big fan of this one. You know, I don't think he disliked it or anything. Uh, first of all, his his first comment was that uh, Strider Marcus uh, Strider is the new telepath because he hasn't shown up <laughs> since episode one. So, so that is his new beef for this season. Um, but but as for this particular episode, he just thought that there were one too many story elements. He said there's, there's four or five threads going on. None of them really had time to develop fully as far as he was concerned. So he, for him, it just the whole thing sort of felt rushed and empty, like it was a sampler sized B5 episode. He just um, hasn't watched enough soap operas in his life, apparently. I, he probably has not. Um, and, you know, he like he didn't feel like things got wrapped up everywhere as well as he would have liked for example the jakar subplot like we never actually saw what happened to nafar did he go back did he get upset about it what you know like that was just that's, a thing that yeah wasn't that's there true. Mm-hmm. so i mean i personally I, I actually like soap operas i i used to watch a few of them uh, on and off back in the day so i have no trouble with that style of storytelling so i quite like this episode uh even and i even do like the the, the berserker plot because i thought it was clever of sheridan to sort of figure it out at the end and that was mm-hmm. that was the the thing that stuck out in my memory about this episode once i mm-hmm. once i got into it from the first time that yeah I'd watched although it, it occurred to me they they didn't even mention it in passing this would have been the the perfect uh thing for brother theo and his group to help work on but that's true that is true all right well anything else that you guys noticed or wanted to touch on before we uh before we move it along um no i think everything that i've got belongs properly on the other side of a jump gate yeah i think uh as far as uh within this episode i think i'm done as well Okay, well, then I will tell everybody what your homework is for the next episode, and that will be to watch the episode Passing Through Gethsemane. Uh, so come and chat with us on Twitter and Tumblr at B5 Audio Guide, and also please visit us on our website, b5audioguide.com, and let us know what you guys thought about all of these many, many plot lines. There are spoilerific sections for folks who want to talk about the story in relation to the whole five-year arc, and if you are watching the show for just the first time and don't want to get spoiled, there are spoiler-free sections just for you. If that is you, you don't have to go there, but you can't stay here because we are about to go through a jump gate into spoiler space. Well, Stephen will be pleased to know eventually that Veer will be back after yes. creating an underground railroad for the Narns. But boy, you guys should have seen his face when he realized Veer was leaving. <laughs> yes, but as you said, he will be back. He will be doing many, many greater things. He will be conveniently reassigned to B5 once his sitcom fails. <laughs> <laughs> nice how that works out. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's a it's 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 a really good move though for the character. You know, JMS says, Okay, I need to give Stephen first a bit more flexibility. Let's make Londo even more alone and miserable. Yeah, it's yeah, it's a perfect thing. And it's perfectly in character for Londo to do this. Um so yeah, it fits very, very well. Mm. Mm-hmm. 
I just, I like, it was hard for me not to tell Stephen, like, no, he'll be back. Like, but <laughs> be okay. well, he's I in the season promise. credits. Not that, yeah, well, not well, that that means much, but <laughs> as I know, learned. I know. And, and uh, you, you, I want to shake Stephen and say, there will be plenty of Marcus. There will be uh-huh. plenty of Marcus. <laughs> uh, I love that he doesn't know it yet. That's just funny. We'll yeah. get there, dear. We'll get there. <laughs> well, to be fair, he's been burned enough. That is true. That is true. I mean, his his complaints about the opening credits are absolutely warranted up until this point. So I think it's I think it's actually kind of funny that they have been so inaccurate in helping predict who's important on the show that they're no longer even remotely <laughs> useful when it comes to that. They've 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 it's like the boy who cried wolf. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I mean, side note, uh, I was just happened to glance over at my box set for uh, season three and. Who is on the box art, who has not only not been seen yet this season, but isn't even in the opening credits, but Patricia Tallman. Mm-hmm. Yep. She is, and that's why I haven't even let Steven look at the box for the season three box set yet, because I know eventually she's going to show up and she's going to do some stuff. Next I mean, she'll episode. be in the next episode. Yep. Um, but I just, you know, I, I didn't want to even give him that spoiler because he really, really likes to be spoiler free. So, yes, he mm-hmm. covers his eyes every time I get out the box and put the disc in the machine. <laughs> Welcome to my life, people. This is how we do it. (laughs) You are to be commended for your efforts. Uh, well, turning from uh, from my Stephen to the show's Stephen, uh, yeah, his stim problem is going to get worse before it gets better. Yep. Yeah. And this is the yeah. This is the moment um, when all of the groundwork that's been built finally comes in. Yep. And yeah, I really remember to... it. I remember it strongly because it was uh, somewhere in here when I first started watching the show. So it was that was my introduction to Dr. Franklin was this guy who was hooked on stims. So to mm-hmm. me, it's just like, oh, we're finally here. This this feels like home to me when it comes to this character. Yep. But of course, and it's going to uh, it's going to, you know, build and build and get worse and worse until he finally comes this close to killing somebody. Mm-hmm. Just like just like uh, the doctor back in Quality of Mercy. And that's when he realizes he's got to stop. He's got to, you know, uh, resign his position and go get himself clean. Mm-hmm. If stems are so I'm dangerous, I mean, I just it fascinates me. Um, you know, I, I surely there's been some fanfic back there or a um, or uh, somewhere on the Babylon 5 wiki or something like that about the about how stims become so commonplace and why they're legal as opposed to illegal and all this other stuff, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, because we've seen in we've seen in this episode in this series that, you know, it's dangerous. It's it's it, it's it's really dangerous stuff. It's treated it is as bad as alcohol, which is still perfectly legal and all that other yeah, stuff. Yeah, I mean, but. I don't think, and, you know, I, I, he likens it to, you know, something that is usually prescribed for a yep, specific yeah, he reason. Does, he does say that. Yeah, right. So it's it's a prescription drug. It's not that it's just available anywhere to be picked up. But, you know, plenty of people these days get addicted to legal prescription drugs. Right. Um, and it's, I think that's the same kind of situation we're looking at. It's not an illegal substance. It is something that is available and, you know, does the job Stephen needs it to do, the problem is in his situation and the pressure cooker that he's in, you know, not just inside Med Lab, but the bigger pressure cooker of Bay 5 that it's becoming, you know, it is it, it starts to rule him just like, you know, painkillers can start to rule people, you know, all around us right now. Um, or, you know, enter- those energy drinks that, you know, those little tiny bottles that, you know, people think yeah. that they can just pop one and stay awake. They're, those and those they're over the counter. 
Yep. You know? So totally are. So I, I don't have any problem believing the situation. Um, the other thing that I noticed was just that I, I like this episode as a step for Jakar towards becoming the mm-hmm. leader that he will be. You know, he's not there yet because he will be a, a spiritual leader, whereas right now he's he's not exactly a military leader, but you, you might as well be. You know, it's it's yeah. a, it's not quite a cult of personality yet, but this is very clearly a step in Head, that direction because, yeah, heading there. because they want him to stay, you know, you're the one that taught us this. And I was like, oh, there's there's a hint of the future. Oh, yeah, and, yeah. And like, you know, not two scenes before, you know, he's like, I didn't teach you all this when they're going after Nafar. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. And in just a few episodes, uh, they're going to be throwing themselves in front of Earth Force um, um, yeah. small arms fire just on Jakar's say so. Yep. Yep. Lots of excitement coming with the Narns, that's for sure. Yeah, but we're only and we're only a, a couple of episodes away from dust to dust, where is, you know, Jakar's own partially drug induced um you know talk about synchronicity um huh. his own visions from kosh that help push him exactly to that spiritual leader that he's going to become that's true and i mean that's that's all that i i got for for future stuff i'm, I'm hoping you guys notice more things <laughs> i mean well, once again it's just sort of everything is moving in the direction now mm-hmm well, something, you know, going back to the um, the transport uh, pilots situation and, you know, Ivanova brings up the fact that, you know, if we have to hire more people to compensate for the fact that we have to search everybody for weapons, it's going to raise the docking fees, you know, practicalities like that. Um, and, you know, we're only, um, what, five or six episodes away from, you know, Babylon 5 declaring independence, cutting itself off from Earth resources. And then, you know, all of these kinds of practical situations are going to just balloon. So I, that that's something that ran through my head as uh, Susan was making that speech. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, the only other thing that I want to point out is um, as much as the Berserker plot just didn't work for me because it is so separated from everything else you know the berserker arrives the berserker is gone we never hear from them and again or anything else like that there is a bit of thematic resonance for what's coming in that it's an alien super society that is making its own decisions about who's worthy and who's not worthy and who's threatening and who's not threatening and, you know, the, yeah, it's a different way to weed out the undesirables. You know, you've got, you know, like the shadows mm-hmm. making them fight each other to do the same thing. And and the Vorlons just trying to put them all on the chessboard. Exactly. Yeah. This sort of um, presages uh, the um, that very chess battle. Uh, and uh, Sheridan is going to be the guy along with Dolin. Sheridan and Dolin will both be the ones who um, say that, no, we're not going to play your games anymore. Mm-hmm. And I think that this is not, this is this sort of sets the stage for that, yeah. Or at least, or or at least, it echoes it, echoes it a bit. Yeah, it certainly echoes it, whether it's meant to um, foreshadow it or not. Yeah, yeah. And the design of the thing was, you know, a little bit Vorlonish. It did look a eye. little bit like a, a small garlic bulb as opposed to a giant one, like a Vorlon <laughs> ship. <laughs> Speaking of which. This is not the right time or place for it, but <laughs> it has come to my attention as at the time of recording, there has been much conversation in the matters of 
Honor spoiler and spoiler th- free threads at b5audioguide.com that JMS did not care for the design of the White Star. <laughs> let it be let it never be said that we are mere shills for the showrunner. JMS is wrong. The White Star is effing awesome. <laughs> this 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 probe not so much. Yeah. <laughs> here here. I you know I have a completely unrelated question. Um I, I am totally with Stephen. I feel like Lieutenant Corwin, uh, Joshua Cox is his name, right? Yes. Um, yeah, I, f- I feel like he deserves a, an opening credit as well, especially considering that he becomes more and more of, of a character yeah. uh, as, as time goes on. Does he ever get a, a, sh- a spot in the opening credits? Does Not I, until I The River five? of Souls. Really? Oh, okay. well. Let, okay, I, I will check the I will check the season five credits real quick, but I'm pretty <laughs> sure. He, he he gets co-star billing in the River of Souls. Okay, I mean he starts to show up in like you know after the opening credits, you know as you know the the credits run for producer director and such and who's guest starring. Mm-hmm. He starts to pop up there very consistently, um, uh, or has has started to I do that he... for several episodes now. But okay. as far as being part of the main group, um, mm-hmm. it, it's either episode five or like Chip said the the movie the River mm-hmm. of Souls movie. I yeah, am. I mean... lo- I am zipping through YouTube right now, looking (laughs) at the credits. This is what we do for you, dear listeners. Zip, zip, zip. There's Mira. There's Richard Biggs. There's Bill Moomy. There's Tracy Scoggins. Oh, Mm -hmm. Tracy Scoggins. Jeff Conaway. Patricia Tolman. Jeff Conaway. Peter Jurassic. Nope. No Joshua Cox. That's sad. Yeah, because I mean, every time that we have seen him up until now, I've always I've been very excited, but I've been excited in, for spoiler space reasons because I I know what he becomes as his character. I feel like this is the first time that we really get to see he, him as a person sort of coming out because that man that dry humor and just sort of like you know he 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 knows his place. He knows what yeah. it is smart to say yeah, and a- not say. And it's a better fit for a laugh than um, and now for a word where he's, you know, talking about working on Babylon 5 and, you know, keeps nervously looking back because he knows Ivanova's back there. Ivanova is back there and can hear him. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this is a much better showcasing of, of some humor and personality concerning him. Yep. I just I part love of that. The team. I love that actor. And I'm not surprised that he ended up becoming a bigger part of, of the show. I feel like. I feel like it's probably because he's so good and and kind of steals the scene a little bit when when he has these little moments that he continues to grow as a character. So yay, Mm -hmm. Joshua Cox. Yep. All right. Well, anything else that uh, that you guys are, are looking toward based on this episode? Um, well, you know, glad to see Talon back and glad that he's going to stick around um, and become, you know, eventually um, Jakar's right hand man on on right. the station handling the NARM population. And ultimately. And ultimately takes ambassador. his place as ambassador. Yeah. So it's very cool to see him reintroduced um, with his name, proper name and everything. And being such a very, I don't know, it's really cool to see the, the different NARN personalities, you know, that he's going to be sort of the pragmatic to Jakar's um, loftier Idealist. ambitions mm-hmm. uh, yeah the, that that they're going to balance each other out very well um a few episodes from now and continuing yeah my only regret is he doesn't get that much more to do in the season with sheridan mm-hmm. they That's have true. this great scene and he t- yeah. and, and sheridan makes the joke about the bodyguard and there will be a man who will lift to 150 <laughs> that is a gr- that is great it's such a great scene and talon's going to be pretty much in jakar's orbit not anyone else's 
That's true. Yeah, that's a shame. Well, I guess we can't have everything. It's only a 45-minute show every week. I want everything. <laughs> Darn it, I'll never be satisfied. You are <laughs> such a fan. <laughs> such a fan. All right. Well, anything else then before we wrap this sucker up? No, I think we're I think we're good. I think we're ready for another feel-good episode. What do you all think? <laughs> <laughs> You're funny. <laughs> oh boy i actually did a little research to see to see which episode i of babylon 5 i saw first and it may have actually been path passing through gethsemane i may have been wrong this whole time oh I'll, I'll, we'll talk well, more you, about that next time well you said you were like sort of watching bits and pieces until you finally mm-hmm. saw a full one so maybe this was one of the ones you saw like the last half yep. of mm-hmm yeah. So, yeah, I just remember the first time I saw this particular episode, and I'll probably say it again uh, next time. Just um, and of course, the actor's name has left me. That Brad uh, Dourif. Thank you, because the only other role I had seen him in up to that point was um, that movie with Whoopi Goldberg, where he was the where he was one of the shoot 'em up villains. Um, so yeah, to, to turn around and see him playing this monk that you know turns out to be a murderer in his past, but um, mm-hmm. it was really. It was hard to divide my mind from that for a while. So I'm looking forward to rewatching. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he's been in every science fiction uh, or fantasy series <laughs> ever, ever, ever. Warm Tongue. X Files episode with him. So, yeah. Warm Tongue. Warm Tongue. Yep. Exactly. Okay. He was in Dune. That was, like, that was the first thing I saw him in was Dune. So, <laughs> David Lynch's Dune. Yep. All right. Well, I guess we should save all this gold, this podcast gold, for next time. <laughs> yes. When, when I turn things over to Shannon to take us through Gethsemane. So, mm-hmm. until then, this is Erica in Edmonton, Shannon in Durham, and Chip in Durham. And you have been listening to the audio guide to Babylon 5. <laughs>